0: And now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Hear this. This is God's holy word. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we ask you to stir up our hearts and our minds and make them a fertile place for your word to rest and implant and grow and bear fruit. So, Father, I pray that today that you would strip away from everything that we do and say today, strip away everything that's unhelpful, everything that's in error. We ask you to deliver us from all kinds of distraction, and that only what is helpful and only what is good may be heard and received. And said today. So make me, I pray, an articulate messenger of these things that you've delivered us so that we can hear and know and do what you have told us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've ever gone back to watch some of the old sitcoms from the golden age of television, the sitcoms which are mostly black and white, you notice a common convention across all of them from a certain period that looks really odd by today's standards you 've probably noticed this: none of the married couples in those old shows ever sleep in the same bed. They all sleep in twin twin beds, uh, Ward and June Cleaver, uh, Rob and Laura Petrie, um, Lucy and Ricky Ricardo even even Fred and Wilma have uh, two different <laughs> beds, Fred and Wilma Flintstone. They have two separate beds, and there 's never any hint of marital intimacy between any of these married characters, anything more than a Peck on the cheek at the most. And during the same period, even in the movies, now movies have always driven farther and faster, and they've pushed things uh, harder than broadcast television, but even in the movies, there was very little in the way of any physical intimacy on screen, any physical contact between actors. Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart might embrace a woman, might even, might even kiss her. But then the camera would pan away from them toward a window with a curtain blowing in the breeze. And then the next scene would be the next day. And everything was uh, left to the imagination. Everything was off stage, out of sight, and left to the viewer to surmise what was taking place. Now, today we might look at this and we think that's really silly and prudish, it's really repressed, or it's devoid of reality, or maybe even you could say it's artistically underdeveloped, uh, if if you were of that persuasion. But, But these standards reflected what had been for centuries the official and public ethic of Western civilization. And that is this, that sexual intimacy is the private, exclusive, and sacred privilege of a man and woman Covenanted together in marriage. Now, that's not to say that the public ethic was never undermined in pi- uh, in private. Of course, it was undermined in private, repeatedly. Even when the church held great influence in the West, uh, the the ethic, the standard was held forth, but it was it was always violated in private. Yes, but the public position was one of purity. And chastity, sexual abstinence outside of marriage, and full enjoyment within marriage. That was the norm, and all of the societal momentum ran toward upholding that standard. Deviating from that standard was shameful and scandalous. It was recognized widely as a sin that required repentance. It's not something that was supported, definitely, not celebrated, not accepted, not assumed. Now, of course, we're living in a different world today on this side of the sexual revolution. Now, the sexual revolution didn't produce a bunch of sins that weren't there before. People were desecrating marriage and fornicating and participating in homosexual behavior long before the 1960s. What is new to our culture, what is new to us, is the open rebellion and the vast number of new opportunities for sexual sin presented first by the dating culture where uh, courtship is removed from the context of the family and is put in the back seat of a Buick or at the drive-in. That's, that's the beginning there of where courtship is removed from the family. But then but then uh, the internet and smartphones and social media have given us all kinds of new ways to fail to uphold the biblical sexual ethic And and all of these things have been well-documented. We don't need to rehearse them all. But if it's any accurate representation of where our standards now lie, as opposed to the 40s and 50s, today, no popular television program, no movie is devoid of sexual impropriety. And by that, I mean... Everyone sleeps with everyone all the time. There's this haze of free love with no strings or no commitment attached. What used to be private sins have now become the public standard. And what's staggering is how quickly we have arrived at where we are. Even when I was in public school in the late 80s, in in high school, we had that health class that was full of information we weren't ready for. It was answering questions we weren't asking. And none of us were ready for any of this. And none of us were really interested. I was interested in football and Star Wars. I wasn't interested in those things. But we had this health class. and, And even in the midst of that, there were these strict warnings about the dangers of illicit activity. In the midst of that, there was still the message, you know what, you probably need to wait. And that was in a public high school uh, just a couple of decades, more than a couple decades ago, no. But, uh, But it seems that today, there's no longer any desire on the part of parents or on the part of the establishment to put any restrictions anywhere, not even subtle suggestions about restrictions, because it is commonly received that teenagers are running animals and there's no way to control their behavior, which is so natural and so instinctual. We are fools to try to stop them And we might as well not even try. So in this context, now, young people are being set up for lives of sexual brokenness because physical intimacy has been torn completely away from the marriage covenant in our society. And not only that, here's the crazy thing. It's been taken away from relationships altogether. You can sleep with someone and still not call them your girlfriend or your boyfriend and and it's and it's even been divorced from any kind of sentiment of love you will sleep with anybody but the big step you know what the momentous step is the huge step is saying i love you that's the big step all this other stuff is just window dressing the big thing is i love you so in this environment where we have no societal reinforcement of the biblical ethic What should be the exclusive marital act of intimacy, the the sacrament of marriage, is now as common and cordial, as private, and as meaningful as a handshake. That's, That's all it's worth today in our society. Now, of course, in the process, not only have we destroyed the sanctity of marriage, and we've destroyed the marriage bond publicly, but there are a host of downstream uh, effects of this immorality. Again, which are all well documented. We've talked about them at length at other times. Abortion, disease, orphans, domestic instability, the pain and emotional scars Caused by sexual crimes against people where the victims carry these things. Drug abuse by people who attempt to numb the guilt and numb the pain of promiscuity. Suicide by those who can no longer live with the destruction of their own sins and and the sins of others. And a generation of boys and girls that have grown up without fathers. We reside now in a world of complete and total insanity on the subject of of, of sexual intimacy and, and it's, it's, it's being ripped out of its context of marriage has given us this world of insanity. Now, if you or I were to address these problems and say, I've got the solution. Here's, here's what you need to do to wipe off the slate a whole host of societal problems and devastation and heartache and grief. I've got the solution. First, obey God. Submit to the Lord Jesus and restore sexual activity to marriage and marriage alone. If you say that's the solution, you'll be ridiculed and you'll be mocked and everybody will have a big laugh. People are so accustomed to promiscuity that they're willing to live with whatever murder, disease, depression comes with it. And they don't care who's orphaned and they don't care whose life is destroyed so long as they can maintain their right to bed whomever whenever. The question of whether we're going to submit to God's design is a question of what kind of world do you want to live in? So we say to our society, what kind of world do you want to live in? And the answer we receive over and over again, we want to live in a world of heartache and we want to live in a world of pain where women and children are abused, where children in the womb are murdered just so long as all of our deviant desires can be satisfied. That's the trade that we're willing to make. That's the deal we want. We want to live in this nightmare hellscape just so long as we can have 10 minutes of pleasure every so often. That's that's what we've bought into. Now you may respond, I hear what you're saying and I've heard this described, but none of this really describes me. I'm not involved in any of that. Do Christians really need to hear any of this? Can't we just move to the next chapter of 1 Corinthians and see what's in there, the one after that? Uh, is this really necessary? And the answer is an emphatic yes, it is necessary. Because the temptations that we face in this society are so powerful and constant that unless our convictions are refreshed continually, we will find that the world's message is impossible to resist and we will fall. You get six and a half days a week of being discipled by everything in the world. On Sunday morning, we get together and we get to remember what God says. I pray you have other times during the week where you're recalling and refreshing as families and as individuals what God says. But the church must be continually reminded of this because of the fact that there's no difference. Depending on what studies you read and what statistics you look at, there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to these morality issues, when it comes to our sexual ethic. Just as many evangelical unmarried couples live together as unbelieving unmarried couples, just as many uh, evangelical and unbelieving couples are cohabitating before marriage. Just as many Christian men use pornography as unchristian men. Just as many Christian marriages end in divorce, depending on what study you look at. If the church were doing better than the rest of society, then I would say, yeah, you have a point. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but we aren't doing better than the society, so I'm not preaching to the choir. We are not exceptional. We are not. We need to hear what God's word says and be continually reminded of it. So let's hear what Paul has to say to the church of Corinth, which of course, Corinth is this pagan city overrun with idolatry, which by the way, sounds a lot like our society overrun with idolatry. So it's not, it's, it's not archaic. It's not distant. It's here. He's already written to them, Uh, just a few verses before concerning a specific situation of adultery. But now he goes further, and it turns out, if if you get the context here, it looks like there are some men in this congregation who believe it's perfectly acceptable to visit prostitutes. Like, that's just completely harmless. Everybody in Greek society did it. Sexual activity was almost entirely unrestricted. You know, kind of like our society. Now, these Christians may think, these men who are doing this, they think, well, since we're spiritual, then the physical body no longer matters. Just as long as our spirits are connected with the Holy Spirit and we have this spiritual connection, as long as we have believed and we think we have eternal life, then the body doesn't matter anymore. We're free to do whatever we can and, and may do with our bodies. And, and so that's just fine. We are not bound by any any law at all they even seem to live by this slogan they and and Paul repeats it to them in verse 12 all things are lawful for me because Paul repeats it twice here and he says it two more times in chapter 10 it seems like this was almost a slogan that they all shared all things are lawful for me and he agrees yes when it comes to our freedom from old covenant restrictions in Christ all things are lawful but all things are not helpful All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved to any of them. So their slogan, all things are lawful for me, that's only half a thought. Yes. All things are lawful in that the Christian is not surrounded by a multitude of remedial restrictions on diet or ceremonial purity. These things that God gave to his people when he was bringing them into maturity, when they were still priests, there was a lot of don't touch this, don't eat that, don't, don't do this. But, uh, and so with regard to the putting away of those things of the old covenant, we have liberty. Liberty. But that liberty is the ability to demonstrate the full scope of the gospel. So to be able to sit and eat with a Jew or a Gentile alike, that's the liberty that we have. that, That liberty is not a blank check to fulfill any fleshly desire that we have. So just because a thing is lawful, Paul begins, that doesn't mean it's helpful, there may not be an explicit commandment against a thing, but that doesn 't mean that it's expedient or that we'll be blessed by doing it. It's like the uh, mischievous boys, the, the mischievous boys who get caught pulling a prank, and they respond, and they say, "Well, there's nowhere in the student handbook that says you can't let loose a pig in the school cafeteria and so since the handbook doesn't say you can't turn a pig loose in a school cafeteria, we haven't broken any rules well. You know, that's just, that's just foolishness. We don't live that way. We don't li- live a way that looks for loopholes and looks for justifications. The mature Christian knows what God desires. The ma- mature Christian knows what pleases God. And so the question is not simply, is it lawful? The question is not, can I get away with this? That's not the leading question. The question is, is it helpful? Not, not can I, but should I? Does this please God? Does this glorify God? So he's he's beginning by questioning their underlying uh, uh, mechanism for processing what they call right and wrong. And they think that as long as as everything is lawful, then everything therefore must be uh, free for us to do. He says, all things are lawful, but I won't be brought under the power of any. I, Paul says, will not be enslaved to anything. Nothing is going to give me orders other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us today, that means not my phone, not my computer, not my Netflix account, not my social media accounts, not my appetites, not my habits. I am not enslaved to any of these things. I serve Jesus. I am under his power. I am his servant. And I am not a slave to my impulses. They had another popular Greek slogan that they were using to justify their actions. Foods for the stomach and the, stomachs for, uh, the stomach for foods. And trying to um, kind of uh, understand what they're, what they're doing here and trying to use this phrase, the thinking must go that since God gave us hungers, since God gave us appetites for food, since God gave us sexual appetites, appetites for intimate contact, then if all we're doing is filling those hungers, then what we're doing must be just fine. I mean, right, God gave us the hunger and all I'm doing is filling that hunger. Well, is that that right? No, Paul says, wrong again. He reminds them that God is going to destroy both the stomach and food. That's not to say that food won't exist in some way in the resurrection because how do we know that? Well, we're looking forward to a great feast with Jesus. However, God is going to put to death stomach and foods in such a way that how we know and experience them now, we're not going to know and experience them in eternity, and he's going to resurrect something even better. And how do we know that? Well, since we will have eternal life in the resurrection... Uh, then we won't need to eat to live, right? We we won't have we won't be in danger of starving to death in eternity with Jesus, right? So so food will have to serve a different purpose than simply keeping us alive. Eating will have some other purpose than merely providing strength and sustenance and, and keeping us alive. There will be a greater glory and a greater purpose designed for all things. And so, and so Paul says, you know, God's going to change all this. So if you're saying we're just driven by our appetites and we're enslaved to our appetites and however we, however we fill our appetites is just fine. Remember, God has an expiration date on this, on this eating and stomach that you, you think drives you and identifies you in the same way even marriage, will be replaced by something better. Because Jesus said that in the resurrection, we won't be married. We won't be given in marriage. Something changes. What does it become? What will our unions and our fellowship be like in eternity? I don't have an answer. I don't know. We don't have that in scripture. And and maybe if we do... It's hidden to us right now. I, 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 it may, may be there. The data may be there. We've got to figure it out. And we've got to understand it. Here's what I can tell you. All I know is, is, is it's better than what we have now because everything everything is expanded and glorified and moved to a higher elevated place in the resurrection. And so even, even uh, our, our union and our fellowship is going to be better uh, than it is right now. And because this is true, because everything is being transformed and everything is being moved from glory to glory, therefore, the necessity of biological functions, the presence of physical needs are not a foundation. They're not an argument for proving the morality of whatever actions we take to meet those needs. And and that's the argument that you hear a lot today, is that we just are built with these urges, we're just built with these impulses, and we have to fill them in whatever way we can. And how can you judge if someone is just going after what they are are inclined to want or inclined to have? And and Paul says that's not a great argument at all. He breaks up their slogan. The body is not designed for immorality. body is designed for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our our bodies, our lives are aimed toward the resurrection and enjoying him forever. We have bodies so that we can serve the Lord with them, not simply so we can fill every illicit desires. At the same time, he created our bodies every single part of our bodies, and he designed their usage. God is the one who thought up sexual intimacy. God is the one who thought up reproduction, and he delights in the design that he made. There are no dirty parts. There are no gross parts. There's nothing to be ashamed of or to be embarrassed of before the Lord. In addition to that, our bodies are not shells that we're trying to get Uh, away from it. And he continues this argument. He keeps building here in verse 14. um, uh, He he says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body in verse 13, verse 14. And God both raised up the Lord. And that's the Lord Jesus. God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Uh, So what he's driving toward here. And what he's building on is that the body is not peripheral. The body is essential in such a way that God is going to give us resurrected bodies. God is going to redeem our bodies. God is saving our bodies. Our bodies will be resurrected and redeemed and renewed in all kinds of wonderful ways that are mysterious to us now. And what that means is that our bodies belong to him. And it means that we can't use our bodies for any old thing we desire. We aren't defined by our passions or our urges. We aren't free to defile our bodies by using them for sin. We are defined by our obedience to the Lord Jesus. So these little slogans that they're using, all things are lawful for me. You know, the stomach uh, for foods and foods for the stomach. These, These little slogans that they're using represent some of that worldly wisdom that, that they've been leaning on, that, that Paul has been pulling down since the very first verses of this letter. And he proceeds to show them the effects of their faulty logic and their wicked behavior. And so in the next few verses, he shows them that by adopting the world's sexual ethic, they're sinning against the Lord, they're sinning against their neighbor, and they're sinning against themselves. They're sinning against their own bodies. And this is, this is the outline he follows for the, for the next few verses. Sinning against the Lord, sinning against their neighbor, sinning against their own bodies. First, they're sinning against the Lord Jesus. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not! Exclamation point. I mean, he's, he punches that. Absolutely not! You and I, we have a union with Jesus. We are joined with him at our baptisms. There is a real union there. We're, we're connected to him. We are his. He is ours. Now, there's another kind of union between a man and a woman when they are coupled together. And, and Paul's argument here is that you must not take the body which you have joined to Jesus' body and join that body to a prostitute. Now, now this argument doesn't make sense if only our souls are united to Christ, or only our minds are united to Christ. No, we are united to him in body and soul and mind. and That means every part of us belong to him. We are, you and I, brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. And so in this way, the abuse of our physical body is an abuse of his body. He wants us to think in these terms. To join your body with a harlot is to join the body of Christ with a harlot. And of course, these Harlots and prostitutes in this period of time were employed by the local uh, uh, pagan temples. And so it was, there was this added element of outward explicit idolatry to everything that they were doing that, that ramped up the severity. As if it weren't bad enough already, now they're joining into this idolatrous perversion and tracking the body of Christ into this behavior and into this disgusting work. And, and he's saying, do you not think about what you're doing? You are the body of Christ and you are joining the body of Christ to idols. This is, this is what you're doing. Did you think about that at all? So fornication is a sin directly against Jesus himself, but it's also a sin against the person you're fornicating with. Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. God designed marriage in such a way that the two become one, not just spiritually, not just mentally, but become one physically. And the act of making love is a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. I give myself to you. You are giving yourself to me. You are literally giving your bodies to one another in a way of of unifying with each other that makes you closer and bonds you closer to your wife or your husband, closer than anybody else on the planet. I belong to her. She belongs to me. That is the union and that is the connection. And Paul is specific. He's taking the same thing that God designed and the same thing that that God ordered. And now he's applying this to fornication with harlots. And he says, uh, what he says here is true of all sins in this category. The implication of fornication is that you make that bond. You disclose yourself to another person. You become, as it were, one flesh. And then you rip that bond apart. And you go to the next person, you make that bond, and you rip it apart. And again, making the bond and ripping it apart, defiling and destroying each other all along the way. This is not some victimless sin again uh, 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 concerning um, uh, consenting adults. In this sin, we are directly leading another person to fall. We draw another person into our wickedness. And rather, leading them into, uh, rather than leading them into righteousness, we lead them into the way of death. We're not drawing them to Jesus. We're drawing them into destruction. And so he inserts here this. The only remedy, if we're tempted in this direction, is to run. At the beginning of verse 18, three words. Flee sexual immorality. When we are faced with sexual temptation, there is no virtue in arguing with it. There's no wisdom in, in trying to reason around it or work to coexist with it. The only response is to turn and run from it. Think of Joseph running from Potiphar's wife, even though it would cause him great trouble, and great heartache to refuse. It was better to run than to stay there and participate. That's that's the command. Run when you're faced with sexual temptation. Flee. Get out of there as quick and as possible, no matter what the cost. And you all know the temptations that you struggle with. That magazine, that book, That website, that TV show, that movie, that person, that store, you know what is going to draw you into sin every time. Don't hang around there and see if you can maybe beat it this time. Don't think, oh, I'm a little bit stronger than I was last time, and I can get through it this time. No! What the scriptures say is run, flee, get out of there, shut it off, turn it down, get out. You are not strong enough and you are not going to win. You're not going to do it. And so this this comes right in the middle of him saying, this is a sin against another person. It's not a victimless sin. It's not a victimless crime. Every sexual sin has a victim. Every single one has. It's doing damage. It's destroying the image of God in someone else. So it's a sin against Jesus. It's a sin against another. And it's a uniquely destructive sin against your own body. Let's finish verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. People in our society accuse the church of having all of these hang-ups. Why do we focus on these categories of sins so much? It seems like more than any other category of sin, we focus on this. There's a good reason for that. First of all, because it's this category of sin where our society is most proudly attacking God's standard, first of all. Second, because this is a category of sins that openly reveals God's judgment, Romans 1. Third, because these sins create so much heartache and destruction, that nightmarish hellscape that I described at the beginning. These are the sins that have created this. And fourth, Because it really is a unique category of sin, as Paul says here. This sin strikes at the root of our humanity. It strikes at the root of our being. It's not the unforgivable sin. It doesn't put you beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Your life isn't over if you commit sexual sin. But in relationship to your body, it is unique. Other sins have effects on the body, but this is a sin committed with the body, against the body. Sins like drunkenness or gluttony damage the body because they're an immoderate use of something good. It's it's an excessive use of something God calls good. Abuses of things that come from outside the body. They are sinful in excess This is sinful in and of itself and a sin against the body. This is a sin that degrades the body. It deteriorates our humanity and the image of God upon us. It's an abuse of the body and it's the abuse of of the body of another when you're united to people in this way outside the covenant of marriage. And what we're doing is taking a good thing that God gave us to unite men and women in the bond of marriage This thing that that makes a reality of the one flesh bond that that brings us together to reflect God's image as men and women. And we take this thing and we drag it through the sewer. We abuse it and treat it shamefully and we destroy ourselves in the process and destroy our bodies. You you sin against the Lord, you sin against the other and you sin against your own body. And Paul does say, "This this is unique in this way. This is different. Paul reminds them of this, and maybe they've forgotten. Verse 19. We'll, we'll finish this section here. <clears throat> Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When a married man or a woman joins themselves to another, their spouse is violated. Their spouse, who has a right and a claim to their spouse's body, ha- they have been deprived of the exclusive uh, privilege of their spouse. And, their sp- and the, the, uh, the offended party is, is violated in a real way. Um, what, what is theirs and theirs alone has been taken from them, stolen from them, and given to somebody else. When you enter the marriage covenant, you no longer belong to yourself. And that, that's where he starts the very next chapter, chapter 7. We won't, we won't go there today. We'll save that for the next week. But um, when you enter the marriage covenant, you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to your husband or you belong to your wife, body and soul and mind. You belong to each other. God has a claim on your body also. When we take our bodies and use them in this idolatrous way, we violate our covenant with him as well. We betray him. We betray the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus because, Paul says, you are not your own. The Holy Spirit resides in you. You were bought with a price, and that price was the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus for your sins. So you can't do whatever you want to with yourself or with your own body, or to your own body. You are called to glorify God in your body. See, the the whole uh, abortion industry is built upon the slogan, my body, my choice. And 1 Corinthians 6 says, hold up, wait, not so fast. It's not your body. Not only is your child's body not your body, your body is not Your body. You are bought with a price. Your creator has a claim on your body. Your savior has a claim on your body. And so it's not simply a matter of who am I, which again, the whole identity movement is based upon figuring out who I am, as if it's some uh, indecipherable mystery, who I am. The question is, whose am I? Who do I belong to? You see, if I figure out whose I am, I will quickly understand who I am. It's trying to answer that question, who am I, without first answering the question, whose am I, that leads us into despair and confusion. You see, right here are the answers to all of this insanity that we're living with. Who do you belong to? You figure that out, and everything else comes from there. I understand that what we're saying in this section of 1 Corinthians flies in the face of everything that the world teaches us and lectures us about. Sexual immorality is assumed and expect it. Of course you sleep with somebody on the first date. Of course you move in together before you're married. Of course you flirt with your coworkers. That's fine. Of course you can fool around with the woman you meet on a business trip. Of course, if you get tired of your husband, you're free to look around. You're you're free to put a, a, a profile up on a dating website or, or look up old boyfriends from high school. Of course, this is so common and so normal that no one acts the least bit appalled anymore. But God's word calls us back to remember that this is not his design for us. It's not even human. This is base. This is subhuman behavior. This is animal behavior. This is the way of death and judgment and destruction. This is the opposite of humanity because being a human is, is glorifying God in your body, understanding who you belong to, that you are bought with a price. Being human is living as man and woman together, unified in the image of God, the two becoming one. As our society, though, continues to burn itself out on this rebellion, we have to be more and more ready to receive the refugees of the sexual revolution and be ready to show them and teach them what it's like to be human. That means we need to demonstrate in our marriages to everyone around us what this means. And, and in the process help them put their past behind them. In verse 11 of the same chapter, he lists all these terrible, wicked, ugly, nasty things and he says, "And such were some of you. You were this, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. You can Have this freedom and this washing and this cleansing and this justification and all of this, you can put all this behind you and look forward to your future in Christ. We have to be ready with that message, and that means building up our marriages to not take them for granted, but to take the things that the world abuses and use them the right way. The right use of marriage is our offense against, uh, it's our taking. The, the offense against this uh, culture of destruction. Um, and also the message here, uh, and I don't want to close without saying this, that if you have fallen, if you have failed, if you have sinned against another in this way, you're not hopelessly lost. You're not beyond redemption. You're not worthless, not at all, not in the least. The message here is not, you know, you're hopelessly lost. The message here is stop it. The message here is repent, cry out to the Lord to give you the courage and the strength to flee sexual immorality and to get on with being the human, the man, the woman that pleases the Lord, because he puts all of our sins behind his back and he really delights to call you son or daughter. So then run from sin, run to his mercy and live in the light of his forgiveness. We'll stop here and we'll continue with chapter seven next week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that indeed, above all things, that you would give us all the strength to flee temptation. Give us a sense of conviction in the sense of your Holy Spirit of this when we face temptation. You do not call us to wrestle. You do not call us to argue with it. You call us to run from it. And so, Father, we pray that you would continually give us and our children this strength to do this. And then, Father, my next prayer is that you would unite us more and more within the bonds of, of marriage, give us a deeper and deeper a sense of what you call us to be as husbands and wives, that we uh, grow together more and more, that you provide husbands and wives uh, for those who are single, that, uh, that you, you quickly bring them uh, a, a partner with, with whom uh, they can share uh, this, this holy and blessed union. So Father, strengthen us all in these various ways and uh, cause us to delight in you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.